0: So if you would go ahead, and as you're being seated, you can grab your Bibles, and we are going to jump into the book of Philippians. We were in the book of Philippians the last couple weeks. In fact, last week, if you were here, remember, and if not, will catch you up. We started a new series called Transcend, and we are now on a journey that's going to take us through the four chapters of the book of Philippians. And so last week, if you weren't here to kind of give you a, a, a context for what we're in this morning is the whole concept of transcend has to do with this reality. That whether you know it or not, God has created you and I to live at a level that doesn't live in denial of our circumstances, but actually is able to live in terms of being above them so that they don't control us, they don't overwhelm us, they don't dictate life. But there's something that we deal with, that we deal from a position of being beyond what the, uh, the, the, the circumstances of our lives can do to us. And the reason that we're going through this book and the reason that the title of the series is Transcend is because the the words that we're reading are written by a man who's in prison. And he's in prison for telling people the wonderful news about Jesus. His name is Paul. And when he wrote this letter, he was writing to a group of people that he had a deep connection with and he loved dearly. But he was writing from probably one of the, the lower moments of his life, when he's been bound and he's been in prison. But what's amazing is he writes this book in four chapters. He mentions the word joy 16 times. Because even though he was in prison, there was something inside of Paul that realized it was greater than his circumstances, because God's Spirit lived in him. And to give you context to who he's writing to, because it's so important, we talked about last week, if you didn't get a chance to read Acts chapter 16, it gives you the background on Paul's relationship with this church that he helped start in Philippi, and the amazing, miraculous, powerful thing that happens, and the persecution that's present in that city. And so as Paul's writing this, he's, he's giving information to people who need to know that God is at work in their life, which is last week, reminding that God starts things in our life, and he will always finish them. But sometimes you and I have to be reminded in the middle of the race, God is still working in my life. And then this week, we're going to talk about the next kind of chunk of verses there is verse 7 through 11, particularly verses 9 through 11, where Paul talks about love. He talks about how love is supposed to actually increase and grow and develop and become deeper, now think for a moment, why in the world would Paul, who loves this group of people dearly, why would he tell them when he's writing from prison that they need to learn to understand what it is to love more? I know from personal experience why Paul would write that. Because you, if you're anything like me, when, when pressure is applied, he's ri- writing to a group of people who are under pressure, persecution, life is not perfect. But when pressure is applied to our life, you know what has a tendency to happen? We love less or we lose love we end up backing off from the conviction to love other people around us. If you're like me and in and, and anytime pressure is applied, does love always come out? No. All kind of other garbage comes out, but love doesn't seem to seem to be there. So Paul's writing to a group of people saying as the pressure from your culture and your surroundings presses in on you, what should be growing deeper and more profound in you is this thing called love. And so we're going to look at that this morning because I think we can all relate to that. So if you have your Bibles, let me read verse 7 down to verse 11 of Philippians chapter 1, and then we'll walk through it together. So remember, Paul's writing to this group of people he loves so much, has a deep connection with, and he says this in verse 7. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So what I want to walk through those few verses there and talk through what does it look like when we actually learn to love more in our life. When our love actually doesn't stay static, it actually develops and progresses. So the first thing is, just look at verse 9. The first thing is, how do you and I learn to love more? And this is going to be really profound. Ready? Love more. You got it? That's like the core. What does that mean? That means that you and I have to have an understanding of love that's different than how we usually define it. Paul says this. He says that your love may do what? May abound more and more. What is he saying? Love isn't something that you come to one day, and then you just hang out in the rest of your life, and it never changes or grows or develops. But so many times we think, well, I love that person, or I can love that person, or love this group of people. But that love doesn't just stay static where it is. It doesn't stay in one place. It continues to develop and to grow. And that's important because there are certain people and certain times and seasons in our life when more love is required to love people. Because if you're like me, I've met a few people in my life that are very difficult to love. Fair to say for all of us? Because it's hard sometimes to love, but Paul's saying your love has to abound more and more, especially he's talking to a group of people who have persecutors, people that don't like them, that are making their life difficult. They have enemies, like we have enemies. And because of that, Paul's saying your love has to grow. And I think that's important because sometimes you and I think that when we do things out of love, we think that we've kind of reached the pinnacle of what love looks like, not realizing maybe there's a deeper or more important level of love that has to be developed in our life. Some of those moments when they happen to us they kind of come as a shock um i think i've shared this before with my grandfather he, he passed away with parkinson's disease and it was like an eight-year process as he walked through that difficult disease but after probably about halfway through the disease or so uh, we realized that we couldn't care for him at, in ho- at home anymore so we, we had to put him into a facility where they could care for him better and and that was a hard decision for me i know my my dad and his siblings had to come to that decision that was hard for them But I remember thinking, Kim and I had been married for about a year or so, and so I I said, honey, we got to make a commitment to care for Grandpa. And and she was all in. And so we lived about an hour away, and and so about once a week at first, we were going, and we'd drive, and we'd spend some time there with him. and, And then things got busy, and it was like twice a month, and then it was about once a month. I was trying my best, but just to show him love. And I remember every time I would show up and we would do things for him and I would tell him over and over how much we loved him and, and one of those times I remember uh, he hadn't been shaved in a couple of days so I shaved him and, and then I, I, I washed his hair and then I was just kind of combing his hair and, and so he's just kind of sitting in this chair and so I leaned down and I just whispered into his ear I said, Grandpa, I sure love you. Now for me, this is a very moving and profound moment and there was this kind of quiet pause from moment. I'm waiting for. What do you think I'm waiting for? I love you too, right? No. And his kind of deep clears his voice, and he goes, prove it. Like, whoa. At first, I was a little offended, I'll be honest. It's like, I thought I was proving it. But I know what he was saying. He was saying to me, without saying it, he was saying, you show up once a month, maybe twice a month, and you comb my hair, and you do this, but what about all the other times during the week? This is my life, and you show up, and you say you love me. Prove that you love me. And I remember thinking that that, that my definition of love usually has a limit to it. But the love that God wants us to have for each other and for him ultimately doesn't have a limit. And has to grow and has to move and has to develop. It's the first thing that Paul says. The second thing Paul says going on in verse 9 is if you and I are going to love more, then we have to learn to love deeper. Because he goes on and he says this. He says that our love is supposed to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Or NIV says depth of insight which means that love has to go deeper in its understanding of people. Now, this is hard for us because we have a tendency to love at the surface level because we think we understand people, we think we know what they want, we think we understand them, and we love them at that surface level, not realizing that there has to be something that weights our our love to the point where it goes deeper into the understanding of who people are. Why is this significant? because what happens is that i'm convinced in my life the the more i understand people the deeper i can learn to love them the less i understand people the easier it is to hate them because ignorance truly does breed hate because we can stay on the surface and think of all these surface reasons why i should not love this person but when you and i go deeper into relationship with people we get in contact with their humanity and we understand their humanity because we're human too something has to happen Something has to change. The more that we understand, so a couple weeks ago, our community group was was doing our laundry love, our and we were in the in the laundromat, and that to me that's one of my highlights of my month. And uh, it's and our, we've been doing this for a little over a year, so we've built relationship with people who show up, and we always have new people coming in, and so these great conversations that happen. And and so we, we've been in that laundromat long enough. When when a newbie walks in, our whole team knows who it is. They, we know that they're new, and not only new to to kind of laundry love but like new to the whole idea of what's going on that people are here strange people are trying to pay for my laundry what's this all about and so this guy comes walking in and all of us right away were like okay this guy he's lost you could see he's like he's walking in why is it so busy in here and so one of the one of the team members comes over and 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 uh, says go talk to him like well i'm waiting for you to talk to him but i'll talk to him and so so i went over and and uh, as i started to talk to him i said hey i said uh, it's free laundry tonight he goes really I said, yeah. He said, did you not know about this? He goes, no, I didn't know. He goes, I used to go to another laundromat. I'm here tonight. I'm like, well, it's free laundry. I said, so get all your stuff set, and and I got quarters for you. And he goes, wow. And so I could tell not only did he not know laundry, love, he didn't know laundry. So he's like shoved in like twice as much, you know, laundries can fit in there, and then he's putting soap in, and then he grabs the, the fabric softener, and he starts pouring. I'm not joking. He's still pouring. And I finally I'm like, ah, and then literally all the top of his clothes are just covered in. I'm like, well, we'll have to deal with that later. Anyway, so he put the quarters in, and so, so the machine starts going. So I, I could tell by his accent that he was not originally from the United States. And so I, I said, hey, I said, so where, where are you originally from? And no joke, this is what he said. He goes, I'm from Bethlehem. And I said, you were born in Bethlehem? And he's like, I was born in Bethlehem. I said, really? I said, so we, I just, I just, we just start talking. Mean, are you kidding me? I said, so tell me, what was it like? And so he starts talking a little about his upbringing. He's Palestinian, obviously, so he's raised in the, in the West Bank. And, and so I said, tell me, what was it like to, to be raised in basically an occupied land? He said it was difficult. He said, you, you, you just couldn't move about freely, and there was always tension. And I said, well, what, what are some of the things that you enjoy about the United States that, that maybe you didn't experience while you were there? And he said, honestly, he goes, one of the things I love about the United States, he said, I, I can drive my car anywhere I want to go. He goes, when I'm back home, he goes, I can't even go from village to village because there's too many checkpoints and the Israeli soldiers always are looking for trouble and, and you feel like you're always having somebody look over you and dominate you and so he said he, he's been here for about two and a half years and he loves it. He was in New Jersey for six months and hated it, but he came out here like, the sun's out and he loves to see me at Valley War Park. and so he's, it, we're just having these conversations. So he's an electrician and he's, he wants to open his own business and so I just started just asking more and more about his experience. I said, so, Tell me, what else are the things that are different about being here? He said, well, people are, like, more friendly. See, because remember, he's coming from a place where he's living amongst Palestinians, dominated by I- Israel in, in an occupied area. And he comes here, and he says, people talk to each other. He said, it, it, it's, their people are so friendly. And I said, really? He said, well, tell me, like, how are they friendly? He said, you know what's different than, than back home? He goes, I have Jewish friends. I said, you have Jewish friends? He said, yeah. He said, when we're back over there, he goes, Palestinians and Jews don't talk to each other unless there's violence involved. He said, but he goes, I I just say hi to them, and and they're Jewish, and I'm Palestinian, and we get along. And he was amazed by that. And this is one of the things that I I thought we forget. You know, with all the, the tension about immigration, we live in one of the most amazing cultural mixes in the history of the world. Somebody can come from Palestine and can be friends with a Jew because of the the makeup of our nation. It's beautiful. But see, what's different is that he sees Jews differently here than he sees them at home because he doesn't have any Jewish friends at home. He has Jewish friends here, and you know what that means? He actually knows people who are Jewish. He knows their names. He knows their stories. He knows their life, and therefore he actually can call a Jew who is his enemy back home a friend. See, his understanding and even his love and commitment to someone who's Jewish has changed because he knows them now. See, that's what God calls us to do is some of the people that are enemies right now in our life, the reason they're enemies is because we don't know them. Now, I'm not saying if you get to know your enemy, it's going to change everything. But I will tell you this. The more we get to know people, the better chance there is that our our love is going to go deeper for them than it is now because we understand who they are. We understand what I know my friend was saying is that I understand that Jews are humans, too just like Palestinians. Third thing, in verse 10, Paul goes on and says, not only is your love supposed to be deeper, but it's supposed to be actually wiser. So he says, so that you approve or understand or know what is excellent or best. So when your love goes deeper and your love gains knowledge, your love actually gains information that is helpful to actually show what love is supposed to look like to other people. Sometimes you and I, this is our concept of love. And really, it's not love, it's emotion, which is, I love, when we say, I love you, a lot of times, if we're honest what we're saying, I love how you make me feel about me. Anybody want to admit that's true? That's not love, that's emotion. Love is a commitment to the other person to demonstrate for them affection and love and compassion in a way that they understand that benefits them. You've heard the term love languages, and there's a book called The Five Love Languages a lot of people are familiar with. And what is that book? The whole premise is that love is not the same to everybody. Love is interpreted differently by each person. Therefore, you have to understand what is love to that person, not assume you know what love is, because you can say, oh, I love this person, and that person says, no, they don't love me, because they've never demonstrated love to me. And you're thinking, but I do every day, not if you haven't done it in a way that they understand it. Why? Because there has to be knowledge to our love. There has to be understanding to our love for people. So I'll put this in, this isn't the only context, but it's in friendship and anything, but I'll put it in the context of marriage because this is how it works for me. I, Kim and I have been married for a long time now, and, and it's, but it took me a long time to figure out the way she sees love and the way I see love are very different, very different. And so over the years, I would do things thinking, oh man, Kim's going to really think this is the most loving thing that I've ever done for her. And it was the exact opposite. When we were dating, I bought her flowers all the time. In fact, sometimes I would buy her two dozen. Some, there's a couple times I bought her 100 roses, and I would take them to her work and put them on her car. And so it was like, man, she's going to think I'm the best boyfriend in the world. It wasn't until after we got married, this, this, I don't even remember where it was and what, what, how long it took me to figure this out, but she said, honey, I don't like flowers. <laughs> I'm like, you could have told me that years ago. It would have saved a whole lot of money. But, I mean, uh, one thing is true about Kim, I love it. She, she doesn't like to be the center of attention. So when, when we were in college and I would leave 100 roses on the roof of her car at work, she'd have to go home into the dorms, and she walks into the dorms with 100 roses. She's kind of the center of attention. And so she's like, no, I, I just don't like that. And so the other things, is, like, I bought her a shirt one time, and I thought it was the most beautiful shirt in the world. She said it was the most ugly shirt she's ever seen in her life. And she told me early on, she says, gift cards are your friend. I've learned that. I don't shop for Kim anymore. And the minute you heard, I went to the deepest, darkest jungles of the Amazon region in Brazil on a missions trip and found some local woodworker who carved this beautiful thing in Portuguese saying, with Kim's name, I love you. And I had to carry that thing as carry on all the way back to the United States. And then I went to Kim's house and I gave it to her and I said, Look how much I love you. And she's like, That's nice. Literally, when we got married, I said, Honey, where's that? She's like, uh, It's gone. <laughs> I'm like, oh, she was. I don't know, it's lost somewhere. I finally figured out, Kim didn't like gifts. You know what she likes? She likes when I actually do things for her. That means that acts of service, like, she would rather not me buy her flowers or a shirt, but if I'll clean the house for her, <laughs> Yeah, amen, over. That speaks to her. It took me seven years to figure that out. She's a very patient woman. But think about your relationships. What are in in friendships and marriage and whatever it might be? Think about the people around you and how have you demonstrated love to them? Are you demonstrating love to them in a way that you want to be loved? Or are you listening and learning and letting your love have knowledge and wisdom that says, I'm going to love that person the way they need to be loved? It's kind of the way God does it with us. He loved us in the way that we needed it most. and We needed a savior. We need God to demonstrate his love, and he loved us Why? by becoming human like us so he can understand us. So you and I have to understand to love more means we have to love wiser. Fourth thing, Paul goes on, and that is that you and I are to love authentically. So Paul goes on and he says that we should what? We should, it's, it's so that our love would be pure and blameless, that we'll be pure and blameless before God someday, but there's an element of our love being pure and blameless, If we're pure and blameless, that means we love in a pure and blameless way. What does that mean? That means that our love is actually authentic. And this is a tough one. If we're actually going to love the way Paul's telling us to love, and he's telling the church of Philippi to love, that means we have to love without manipulation. And for human beings, it's really hard to do. Think about this. When was the last time you genuinely loved somebody without any expectation of getting anything in return? Think about it. But you and I could probably think of 10 times where we love somebody knowing and hoping if I do this for them, then I'm going to get a benefit for it. That's not love because love is completely selfless. Love doesn't, doesn't ask for things. In fact, listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians thirteen five. He says love is what? He says it does not seek self. It's not se- self-seeking, which means I can't come to somebody to love them with an agenda that's for my benefit. That's hard to do. Because all of us have that challenge of, I'm going to represent a certain way of love towards this person because I think this will trigger something in them that will reciprocate the affection, and then I will ultimately get what I want. Anybody want to admit you've ever done that before? We have. We do it all the time. There's a modern word for it. You know what it's called? It's called catfishing. Anybody seen the TV show Catfish? All right, so you, three more of you watch TV than first service. That's good to know. So, But the concept of catfish... Is that especially in the, in the culture of social media where you can pretty much create the reality of who you want to be, is that people will go online and they'll create fake profiles and they'll, be, they'll steal pictures from somebody else and they'll make up stuff just to be in online relationships with people, but they're not really who they are. The only reason they're doing is is they're catfishing somebody, they're fooling somebody, so they can get what they want out of the relationship. The TV show is a fascinating kind of psychological t- show where you kind of break down why people like, how can you believe that that's, someone, that that's true, but people will believe anything because they're so desperate to be loved. I love the show because they, they pretty much expose the catfish. They kind of bring them out to the light of day and then they see what happens. But I think you and I, if we were honest, there are many times that we catfish people all the time. We're not being totally honest and authentic about who we are, about what we're up to. Our motives are not pure and blameless. Our motives are a bit corrupt. They're a bit selfish. And you know what one of the things we have to be careful of? Is that in the church, we sometimes endorse that kind of love. Love that is not authentic. So I'm not going to mention the author, but there's a book a number of years ago that came out, and this was the title, Sex Begins in the Kitchen. Okay, I'm not mentioning the author, okay? But people are like, ah, you know who really bought that book? Husbands. Because here's the premise of the book. If you're nice to your wife and you do the dishes and you make dinner and you clean the house, guess what you're gonna get at the end of the day? Sex. That's the whole premise. That sounds like really pure and blameless love to me, right? No. Because I remember I remember guys like, yeah, that's it, that's the key. And no, 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 no. No, and by the way, guys, just a side note. Women are smarter than we are. They know what we're doing. They're not stupid. But you know what's, what's amazing? And I know I've seen this in, in my rel- with Kim and our, our relationship, is that when I authentically do things that look, are looking for nothing, that's when our bond of love is strongest. Because I'm not looking for anything in return. Tr- if there's something pure about it. If you and I had, could learn to actually love people in a pure way, guess what? They would love us more back. Because they would realize... There's nothing manipulative behind this. This is true, authentic love. And then the fifth thing, Paul goes on, and that is that you and I should learn to love faithfully. So if, if we're going to be pure and blameless, and he, sees this for, he uses the phrase, upon or at the day of, of Christ, which he's talking about, obviously, Jesus returned and at the end, and so that love ultimately, as it grows and it, it, it becomes pure and right, that, and that ultimately what it is, it's a, it's a love that lasts a lifetime for people around us. Why is that important? Because we're good at portions of our life. We're good at people in our life. But are we good at loving consistently throughout our life until the day Jesus comes back, that my love is abounding more and more for people around me? Or have I reached a limit somewhere? Have I stopped somewhere because things have gotten difficult? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians thirteen seven: Love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Always. It never, never, never stops. And that's hard for us because there's always a limit to our love. There's a time limit and there's a person limit. Because sometimes that's one and the same. I have tried and I have worked to love this person, but in your mind you make this statement, they're unlovable. God never makes that statement about any person, but we do. And usually it becomes in the form of our enemies. I can love anybody except the person who's hurt me. I can love anybody except the person who continues to sabotage my life. I can love anybody, but that's the limit. That's not love that's faithful. That's love that's limited. And by the way, Paul chooses the word love very carefully in this passage. He doesn't use phileo, and he doesn't use eros. He uses agape, which is the God kind of love, which has no limits, which is unconditional. That's the way that we're supposed to love. And here, I want you just to picture this for a moment. Jesus demonstrates what this love looks like. Talk about a limit. You would have thought Jesus has the right to, to limit this, but I was thinking about this this morning. So Jesus, we know, is fully God and fully man, but he is the creator of all things, and he steps into his creation. He becomes human. He actually fully embraces humanity from birth all the way up. I mean, he's born like we are born, and even his mind develops and his personality develops. He's fully human. And then finally, when he reaches kind of his, his period of ministry, Can you imagine what it would be like to be the creator of all things and now suddenly you're part of that creation? You're feeling the pain of humanity. You're feeling the limitations of humanity. And then you're feeling the hatred of humanity on top of that. You came to establish the kingdom of God which brings freedom and liberation and healing and forgiveness and life and people don't like you. And you live your life that way. And eventually, you're you're wanting to see people's lives transformed. And then they put you on a cross after brutally beating you, after falsely accusing you. And you know you're about to die, not for your sin, but for the sin of all the people around you. And you've done nothing wrong but love them and create them and give yourself to them. And yet, they hate. How would we respond? I just want you to think for a moment what it would have been like for us. But what was it like for Jesus? He's hanging on the cross. The weight of his body is being supported by his feet, which have a nail driven through both of them. And his probably in his wrists, but he can't even breathe barely at all. And he's trying to breathe. And in one of his breaths, he musters the physical strength to say what? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. What is that? That's love. For the very people that are crucifying him. What is he saying? Capture what he's saying, because we don't, we don't play this out. Oh, that's great, Jesus. Great demonstration. This is what he's saying. Father, find a way to forgive this Roman soldier, this Pharisee, this person who's putting me to death so that someday when I come into the fullness of my kingdom, I can look them in the eye and say, welcome to the family of God. Do you capture that? What Jesus is saying is, someday I'm going to want these people who are my enemies to be forgiven so that someday I can stand in eternity with them as my friends. <sighs> Not me. Right? Right? Because what, what would our prayer, if I could muster up I would bre- my breath, it wouldn't say, Father, forgive them. It would say, Father, please kill them, <laughs> right? But who is it in your life? Who is it in your life that there's a limit? I can love this person and this person. I can love in this season of my life, but no, I can't love here. The love that we're supposed to have should have no limit. should be faithful. And then two more things. The sixth thing is that we are to love rightly. Here's kind of the key that I think helps us in this passage because Paul says this in verse 11. He says that we're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. How in in the world is our love supposed to abound? How is it supposed to gain knowledge and understanding? How is it supposed to grow deeper? Because we work harder at it and we try more at it and we think that we can make it happen? No. How does it happen? Through what? The fruit of righteousness that God produces in in us because of what Jesus is doing in us. You need to capture this. One of the difficulties of, of the challenges of Scripture and hearing a message is that you and I go away and we beat ourselves up because we're not, we're, not, we're not getting to the place where we're supposed to be in our lives. And so we think the answer to following Jesus is to just try harder. And then you fail again. You think, oh, I'm going to try harder this time. And you fail again. I'm going to try harder this time. How's it working for you? It's not. Does that mean that we don't try at all? No, no, no. But it means this. How do you and I learn to love people that we consider unlovable? We can't. The only way that happens is when it's produced from the inside of us by what Jesus is doing in making us righteous. It's fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is a byproduct of health. When Jesus is doing something profound in us, guess what comes out? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. You heard those before? Those are not things that you and I manufacture. Those are things that God develops and they come out of us. So when God says, you should love more, you should love deeper, you should love wiser, how do we do that? By letting Jesus do in us what we can't do in ourselves. Surrendering to him so that he can produce in us the fruit of righteousness. So here's a pretty basic example, but go with me on this, okay? What does an apple tree produce? This is not a trick question. Apples, right, okay? So if I walk up to an apple tree... Because an apple tree produces apples, and I think, man, the apple looks great. I want that apple for myself. And I pluck that apple, and I go into my backyard, and I say, I want that apple to grow, and I want it to develop even more because it's so beautiful now. I want it to be even better. So I take that apple, and I find some really strong glue, and I glue it to my maple tree. And I look at and think, wow, look at that, beautiful on my maple tree. And then the next day I get up and I look at the apple, and it still looks good, but not quite as good as it did the day before. And I get up again, and now it's looking a little sickly, and I'm thinking, what's the problem with the apple? Just because I glued an apple to a maple tree, does it make the maple tree an apple tree? No. What's the issue? Is the issue with the fruit? No, the issue is with the tree. It's the wrong tree. So you have to go back to the tree to realize it's not producing fruit. Why? Because it's not that kind of tree. When you and I get so hung up on the fruit, we try to reproduce the fruit by ourselves. You can't do it. You can't copy fruit. Fruit is what? Produced. So when it comes to love, how do I have the love of God in my life? I give Him more territory in my heart. I give Him more authority in my life. I surrender more of who I am to Him and let Him work internally in me to develop the supernatural agape love that I can't have on my own. To me, that is very freeing because it isn't working harder, it's actually surrendering more. It's giving up more of my agenda or my idea or what, what limits there are to the loving the people around me. And then there's this, the final thing, and that is in verse 11, the last phrase that Paul uses. He says, to the glory and praise of God. And that means this, that love has to have a purpose, and love, we are to love purposefully. And what does that mean? You and I may have a purpose for love, but God has a greater purpose for love because ultimately our love for people is, He's supposed to be what? To the praise of His glory. It's about Him. It's not about us. That means that when God tells us to grow in love through Paul's writings, He's telling us not only because He wants people to be loved, but ultimately He knows that love is what's going to help people to understand who He is. It's for Him. So there's actually a purpose. So there's something very important about this passage and about understanding that, that we are to love people. Because God, and He is the only one that has the right to do this, has an agenda our love. It's not only love that flows to us, it's love that flows through us to other people. And it has to be present. In fact, love is the most powerful thing in the world. It is. Love has the capacity to do what other things cannot. Love can do what power can't. Power can cause us to be controlled, or we can do things out of obligation, but it can never, ever be reciprocated. You can't love power. You can only love love. Because love re- or power requires what? Obligation. Love is more powerful. So what does that say about us? Jesus put this in here. He knows what he's doing. That's why, he's, that's why Paul says to a group of kind of fledgling Christians, and Jesus says to his early disciples, one of the ways that people are going to know that you belong to me is because you have more power. No. No. Because you have more money. No, it's because you have more love. What did Jesus say? John 13, verses 13, 34, 35. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Love that came to you. So that what? So you must love one another by this. By what? By love. All men will know that you are my disciples. If you do what? You love one another. And for 2,000 years, we've been struggling with this. We have the hardest time loving our own, I think, sometimes. But this is the beauty of the body of Christ. This is, this is the thing that God has set up from the beginning of time. Understand this. Throughout the, the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, you see it, that the gospel is supposed to go to every tongue, tribe, and nation. We're talking about diversity here. We're talking about people with different backgrounds and different languages and different cultures and eat different food and wear different clothing. Under the guise of the gospel and who Jesus is, that beautiful mosaic is supposed to come together in love for each other. Why is that so important? Because the world's been trying to do it forever and it can't. So what is the world supposed to do? Where's the world supposed to turn? The world's supposed to turn to us and say, they got it. Look at look at all those different people who they don't have anything in common except they have Jesus in common and they found a way to love each other. There's enemies. How can the Jews and the Palestinians come together? Jesus. That's the common denominator that changes everything. Why is this important? Because this is what's going to change our culture. This is what's going to change the world. Jesus, in his amazing wisdom, and we would almost call it insanity, has chosen to use a group of people, very broken people called the church, to be his voice in the world of love. That's us. And if we do it, the outcome will be amazing. Two things I want to close with I'm gonna, in a moment. Mike Jackson is going to come and join me. But, but I want to just tell you, to kind of give you, uh, for some of you, it would be an update. But as a point of prayer about what's happening in our city right now. Really, really amazing thing. So for the past about three and a half years, I've been working with a group of leaders in our city to form this thing called the Network of Care. It's been a battle. It's been a struggle. And the whole concept is, how do we collectively, as the body of Christ, actually work together to meet the needs of the people in our city? We have a lot of great churches in Simi Valley, but we're all doing our own thing. What if we actually all came together and looked at the, the, this thing called need as a pie, and all of us just took one piece of the pie, and collectively together we could meet the needs of the city? This is something I experienced profoundly in Newburgh. In fact, one of my best friends from Newburgh is sitting right over there. His name is Greg. I won't point him out too much. He's smiling real big right now, but... So Greg was a part of this, and we saw in Newburgh, we saw that city transformed because the churches came together. And it wasn't just because needs were being met. That was part of it. But it was because the world could look at the church and say, look look how they came together. They don't agree on on theology and on their practice and on their style, but they're agreeing on the most important things, and they're coming together, and the city was different. Right, Greg? It was different. That's my prayer for our city. Simi Valley could be the same on a much grander scale here's the cool thing two and a half weeks ago we had a meeting here and there were 12 churches physically represented and another five or six that were verbally re- represented and we're moving towards the next couple of weeks that we may actually form this network so I'm, I'm asking you to pray because churches are dropping their defenses and some of the, the the long history of us smiling and waving each other and think i can't stand you is starting to come to an end because there's been an unhealthy competition between churches in our city and the silly thing is we're all on the same team and if we come together you know what's going to be amazing not only will the needs of people in our city be more well met but the world's going to look at the church and go hey they got something we don't have they're getting along and something just might happen according to god's purpose for the world. I'm gonna ask you just to, to close your eyes. We're gonna conclude in a moment, but I'm gonna ask you to do that. Mike, come join me. Mike Jackson is gonna come join me. And he's gonna he's gonna kinda walk us through something just as we conclude that I think will give us something very tangible to walk away with. And the reason I'm having Mike do this is that that last week Mike is one of our, our primary um, teachers for our kids on Sunday morning. He does just an amazing job. We have got a great group of people who are investing in our kids but Last week, he walked our, our kids through something about identifying with Jesus in the relationship to those who we consider unlovable in our life. And what he did was so profound, even for some of the, the lives of the kids, I thought, that, that can't be just for the kids. That's got to be for all of us. And so I asked Mike if he would come and just just visually walk us through what he walked the kids through so that we might be able to walk away with the same understanding of what they had about what Jesus is calling us to do and what, what love will actually look like in our lives this week. So, Mike, would you go ahead? Just, just listen to Mike as he walks us through this.
1: I want you guys to uh, just quiet everything in your minds. And I want you to think about that, that person. Maybe it's a family member. Uh, maybe it's a teacher. Uh, maybe it's a teammate. Um, maybe it's a group of people. You're just struggling with loving them. And it's become so difficult. And now you have this picture of, the, of this person or group or what have you. And now I want you to picture Jesus coming into the, the scene. And I want you to see Jesus coming in. And I want you to see how Jesus reaches this person this group, this teammate, this teacher, this parent, and watch how he embraces him and reaches him right where he's at. Just pause here for a moment. Think about that. Look at the expression on Jesus' face. Look at how his arms are wrapped around. yourself and you're entering the picture and now it's your turn to go and love this person and you need Jesus' help so ask him and see yourself reaching this person no matter how difficult it may be because you see these people need the love of Jesus just like we got God's call is to be his hands and his feet, his ears, his mouthpieces, to reach those that are unlovable.
0: Just pause for a moment. Just kind of sit in that moment, what you see. pray in a moment well, we're going to conclude our service but when Mike shared this first service I knew what he was going to share but as I was reflecting on it for myself when Mike said that there may be a group of people that are unlovable for you and when he said that there was a group of people that came to mind that I think that Jesus was highlighting and it's kind of an unlikely group but it's one that I know it's it's true the group of people that, that Jesus is convicting me about, about truly loving this is going to sound strange especially in, in our culture that we live in I don't have a difficulty loving a homeless person I don't have difficulty loving somebody who's different ethnicity I don't have trouble loving somebody in a different country. I don't have trouble loving someone who doesn't even know Jesus, but I'll tell you what I struggle with and Jesus showed me. I struggle loving a person who has wealth, who values comfort, and who struggles with trying to live in their comfort of their affluence while trying to give token gifts to God to somehow appease him so they can continue on in their comfortable life. And Jesus said, you, you don't love those kind of people. You tolerate them. And as Mike was sharing that, Jesus reminded me he had an encounter with somebody just like that. We know him as the rich young ruler. See, I, I, I can gravitate towards people who want to sell everything and give all they have and follow Jesus passionately and live on mission. I, I, I love those kind of people, but Jesus is saying, that's easy because that's somebody who's like you or someone you want to be like. But it's that person who's wealthy. So Jesus reminded me, Yeah, he, he had an encounter with a guy like that. In the Gospels, this is what's recorded. After this man had had this dialogue with jesus about his own righteousness it says this phrase that now haunts me it says jesus looked at him and loved him he's saying that for me i'm just telling you about for me jesus saying those are the people you have to love those are the people you're supposed to love those are the people you're supposed to understand. Those are the people that your love is supposed to abound f- much and much more for because those are the people that I love. Who is it for you? What does that look like for your life? Lord Jesus, you demonstrated, your mic, you demonstrated for us what love looks like. So I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts now to actually be as you were to people, that we would be the people around us. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now. I'm going to ask, Mike's going to close us in prayer. He's going to pray for us. And when, when and he says amen, we're concluded. And then now's the fun stuff. Now's the, that's tongue in cheek, the hard stuff. Because now we're going to go and love people. But Mike's going to pray for us as we conclude today. Mike.
1: Father, we just thank you, Lord, first off, for the opportunity to be your hands and your feet and your eyes and your heart for these that are unlovable, Lord God. Father, I ask you, Lord, to show us how to be that that offering, Lord God, where we can pour our lives out for those that can't love back, Lord. That, God, you would show us how to do this. These different individuals that you placed in our lives, Lord, that you've shown us this service, Lord. That, God, you would give us the wisdom and the knowledge, Lord, and how to love them, Lord, and to reach them for you, Lord. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you poured out in each one of us. Mm -hmm. Help us to show that to those that that we need need to see this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord.
0: Amen. Amen.